It's the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK and a changing Europe. Hello, Happy New Year and welcome to another episode of the Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And to that end, on this episode, I got some very good guests. First episode of the year, it's really going to be all downhill from here, but this one was a cracker. We got Professor Anand Menon, of course, the director of the UK Interchanging Europe, and Lord Heseltine, Michael Heseltine, Heza, Tarzan, call him what you will. He's an 85-year-old former Deputy Prime Minister, former uh, Environment Secretary, former Defence Secretary, man who's been around politics for a while, as you will discover from this chat. Um, we recorded it on Wednesday, just after PMQs and the ensuing madness, as the House got itself in a lather about who has the power over the Brexit process. Is it Parliament or is it Government? And given that fairly unedifying sight, I uh, began by asking Lord Heseltine how he felt about being a Conservative at the moment. I'll be back at the end to discuss all the very interesting points in this discussion. Here we go. Are you proud to be part of this government? I'm not part of this government. You support, you're a Tory, it's a Tory government, so presumably you support the government. But uh, the Prime Minister sacked me for right. voting, as I believe to be in the national interest. Admittedly, the, her government three weeks later was forced to do what I'd voted for, <laughs> but they didn't unsack me. So are you saying you don't support this government? You've got to get your words right. I am a member of a Conservative Party. I've, yeah. been, I've served every Conservative Prime Minister since Winston Churchill. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you say to me, am I a slave to the political party, the answer is no. I am, if I'm a slave to anything, it's my concept of British self-interest and to the, any m- morality in which I believe. Uh, I am a representative of, uh, as a member of parliament, not a delegate. This is not a communist society or communist party. Sure, it's a fair question though. Do you or do you not support this government? It, on the specific issue of Brexit, no I don't. Um, are you, as you say, you've served under a lot of prime ministers. Um, how does this one rate? How does this administration rate? Well, it doesn't really. Why not? Because it's based on a, a leadership which is flawed. Um, the, the present Prime Minister campaigned in the referendum on the basis that British self-interest was best served remaining in the European Union. Uh, she now tells us that uh, the deal she has is the best for Britain. They can't both be right, but even if they come from the voice of the same person. Well, surely they can both be right if her definition of best for Britain includes respecting the result of a referendum? Well, I've spent my life uh, in politics fighting against the mandates of the British people when I disagreed with the policies of the Labour government that got elected. 
So the authority in this country lies with Parliament, and uh, I believe that very strongly. I don't believe in referenda. I don't believe in uh, instant politics, uh, and, and I certainly don't believe in the sort of techniques that were used, the bribes, the lies, uh, the deceptions, the uh, electronic trickery that was used in order to secure the uh, view of the referendum. So would you say the referendum is void? or No, the referendum is not flawed. It is an expression of opinion of the British people at that time in the light of what they knew. Uh, and as such, you, it, it, I quite understand a government that says we have to um, implement it. But of course no one had the first idea of what implementation meant, uh, and they still don't. Uh, and so what the government has done is to try to avoid all the real decisions by kicking them down the road till after we've left. It is the driving obsession of this government to get through March of this year so that we're out. That's the point at which the real negotiations begin. But by then, the damage is done. It's too late. But that's not just the government, is it? That's, that's inherent in the model of negotiations that the EU pressed for from the start. We'll deal with the future after we felt we've sorted out the past. Well, that indicates the weakness of the British position, that uh, the Europeans are in charge. They tell us what the terms will be. And, of course, we have capitulated at every stage of the game. We were going to have, what was it, cake and eat it? We've ended up with a bill of £39 billion. I mean, given what you said about referendums, do you think Parliament should simply overturn the result of the referendum? No, I think they should go back to the British people and in the light of the evolving circumstances and give the British people a chance to overturn their judgment. And if the British people voted to leave again, then... I would accept that. Um, but, of course, there would be side effects, wouldn't there? If you had a second referendum, it would be horribly divisive. It was horribly divisive, it is horribly divisive, and that will only be healed if it can be healed by time. Um, but a second referendum would make things worse in terms I of divisive. I don't think it can make it worse. It's quite obvious that, uh, I mean, where is division to be represented? Is it in the cabinet? Self-evidently, every day, you've got a different member of the cabinet leaking their dissension about their own government. Right through the government structure, that is the position. In the House of Commons, you have got absolutely no accord. You have got warring factions on both sides, within both parties, and that reflects the country at large. So there is the use of any word called united or unity or unification is completely for the birds in the present circumstances, and it will not change when we leave the European Union, if we do. But in terms of broader faith in politics, surely a concern about another referendum is that we know that one of the campaigns will be based on the notion that they are trying to betray you. And a three, four month publicly funded campaign that basically says politicians are out to betray you can't be good for democracy, surely. I don't think that uh, the referendum process is good for democracy because it asks for people to take a snapshot decision without proper information and it's uh, very rapidly subsumed in issues other than the question in front of us. This, this, issue, this issue of the referendum was determined by two issues. First of all, the financial collapse of 2008 
and secondly, the issue of immigration. Mm-hmm. But, so, I mean, why then? It's interesting, isn't it? Because your colleague Ken Clark shares your suspicion of and dislike of referendums. But he's come to the conclusion that, therefore, the worst of all worlds would be to have another one, even though he shares your view about the decision to leave. Uh, look, I, I, I've spent my life fighting great battles alongside Ken, and our views are remarkably similar, but they're not identical. And there are issues on which Ken and I disagree, and that applies to every member of every cabinet of which I have any knowledge. Governments are coalitions of different people with different views, and the purpose of government is to find a reconciliation at some point where you can move forward. And so pointing out that Ken and I may disagree about one aspect or another at one moment of time is merely a reflection of what democracy and cabinet government is all about. I'm not so much interested in the fact of the disagreement as what you make of his argument, which is, as a matter of principle, he's against referendums. So as a matter of principle, whatever he thinks of how the first one voted, he doesn't think the solution is another one. I I heard Ken this morning, and what he was saying, I think, is that he can't see another alternative better than the May deal. Well, I disagree with that. I think that, uh, uh, first of all, I don't agree with the blackmail threat that there is going to be a, a no-deal leaving. But I think Parliament has already demonstrated twice in the last 24 hours that it won't put up with that. So the blackmail element, you've got to vote for May because otherwise you leave with no deal, has already been bust. But the alternatives in which I believe, and which uh, 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 we'll see, but I'm not, I mustn't put words in Ken's mouth, uh, of course, is the delay of Article 50, the withdrawal of Article 50, a second referendum in which the case is reconsidered by the British public, all of which are part and parcel of a better way forward than voting for the May deal and leaving at the end of March. And as things stand, none of which commands a majority in the House of Commons, whereas no deal is legislated for. Well, no deal happens, come what may. What you're describing is the situation of the May deal. It doesn't command Mm. a majority in the House of Commons. But no deal is legislated for. No deal happens, come what may. It doesn't need a majority. But but there isn't a majority to implement it. But it doesn't doesn't need to It needs a majority for something else, doesn't it? Uh, The House of Commons is not going to implement the May deal, and it's not going to implement no deal. Those are evidence that is pretty clear. Uh, we may, we, we, nothing is certain until the event itself, but that is pretty clear. And so uh, it's no use saying that there is a mandate for something that isn't going to happen. But if Parliament can't come up with a majority in favour of something, no deal happens by default, surely? But I think they will come up with something. What? But, but they will not come up with it until the May deal is voted down. And that explains the position of the Labour Party, who self-evidently have an agenda which is, in my view, not acceptable, but it's legitimate politics. They are trying to get a general election. That's what oppositions try to do. They're not going to succeed. And when they fail, as I think they will fail, then they will have to focus on the next issue, and the next issue will include a second referendum. And you can see that there's a huge swell of opinion within the Labour Party urging Corbyn to move on to that ground. Would you rather have a Corbyn government or Brexit? This is the ultimate traumatic uh, question, and it's really the long term versus the short term. I have no doubts 
about the catastrophic nature of a Corbyn-led government. But it would be temporary. It would not last, and I've been there so many times before, where we have Labour governments, it's always the same, they all end in tears, they all end with the banks in trouble, with the economy in trouble, and the Tories come in and clear the mess up. That's the history of my life. And that would be the situation if we had a Corbyn government. Awful, best avoided, but it is, of course, a possibility, a short-term possibility. Leaving Europe is an historic, historic de decision to opt out of the major power structure of the modern world. That is a permanent undermining of British self-interest. Is it, it must be, I don't, I don't want to get, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it must be disappointing perhaps the fact that as you say you've spent decades fighting against Corbynism essentially you know uh, left-wing socialism call it what you will um, and yet here we are and you're having to choose I mean I know I'm, it's a slightly false choice at the moment but you're having to think about a choice between a Corbyn government and Brexit after all these years the fact that you have to even consider that choice must be I don't know disappointing infuriating or I don't know maybe not surprising uh, it's it's a, 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 an appalling choice, but you see, you don't put to me the other alternative, which is that a Conservative government takes us out of the European Union, presides over the decline and economic consequences, and then faces a general election, which makes it even more likely that there would be a Corbyn government. Mm. And this is the speech I made in the House of Lords. Yeah. So your argument is it's either Brexit plus Corbyn or Brexit or Corbyn, and given yeah. that you'd rather one rather than both. And uh, this no, I think my argument is best avoid Corbyn by remaining within the European Union. Just look what's happened. We were the fastest growing economy in Europe. Mm -hmm. We were recovering from 2008, and we have undergone a self-inflicted wound to make the country poorer by the government's own figures. And that is a formula to go to an election in 2022, whatever it is, where we will lose. Just going back to what you said about Labour and Labour politics, if I may, you don't think the most recent, the, the previous Conservative government carries any of the responsibility, not simply for calling the referendum, but for implementing policies that led so many people to vote against the political and economic establishment just because their lives were great. No, I don't think that that's a fair analysis of what happened. You only have to look at the world post-2008, and all governments of countries like us went through the same trauma. We had, the economies had overspent, companies had overspent, people had overspent, and 2008 was the moment of truth. And what Donald Trump is dealing with in America, what the French and the Germans and the Italians and the Spanish and all these people are dealing with on the continent of Europe is exactly the same problem that we have got here. And it, what has been the consequence? Frozen living standards. And if you have frozen living standards, people want change. And if you can then inject into that two of the most toxic problems that any government has to deal with, foreign control, immigration, you have got the pot that led to Brexit. Um, this is the fundamental issue we keep coming back to. And I think you're the first guest who agrees with me that it's economics that's at the key, is at the core of this. There are lots of experts that the UK are changing Europe, 
who will say that it is in fact identity is part of it. There are you would suggest that economics is at the core of it all. They want to change. And if you want change, you vote for it. Mm -hmm. And Brexit was paraded as the softest option of all at the expense of the foreigner and the immigrant. And that is painless in the eyes or pockets of the electorate. That's what it's all about. And it's that argument is to be found right across the advanced world. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't, you'd then give short shrift to the argument that it was also in part a protest against the Westminster establishment no, that seemed no, to have presided no, over no, increasing no, inequality. absolute nonsense. Uh, <laughs> here, uh, you know, and, and um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's just a sort of... Uh, I mean, there's research out there that will draw strong correlations between areas particularly badly hit by austerity and strength of the Leave vote, for instance. But they want to change. But change because of policies implemented at home. The change of the policies implemented as a consequence of 2008. Okay. There was no choice. Economic policies. Economic yeah. policies. No, That's all about it. Austerity. That was the fundamental background, backdrop against which people made that choice. We wanted, we, our living standards have been frozen, somebody's offering us an easy way out, a painless way out, at the expense of the foreigner and the immigrant. Yes. number of episodes we've had on where all your experts suggest I'm wrong for going on economics Not and they me, tell me it's all about to do with, all to do with identity. Finally, somebody agreed with me. Well, what do, what do you think Donald Trump is talking about? He's talking about the, the, the America first, trade, yeah. repatriation, to create jobs in the Rust Belts. And who's the enemy? Yeah. Five billion pounds worth of, or five billion dollars worth of wall to keep the Mexicans out. Yeah, but if people are well off, they wouldn't, that wouldn't appeal. Yeah, they wouldn't they be weren't well off. No, okay, exactly. James, this isn't all about you. <laughs> it's all Move about on. economics. Oh, I'm pleased to have somebody that agrees <laughs> with me at long last. Um, you mentioned the speeches you've made. You've made, I think I say you've gone viral with your speeches in the Lords in recent years, I would suggest. One in which you said the young would not forgive our generation, essentially your generation, for doing Brexit. And one in which you said uh, the least well-off are the ones who'll suffer most. Correct. Uh, you are neither young nor not well-off. So how come you're the one who's having to speak up for these people? I've never asked myself whether I am the right person or even the adequate person to make speeches. Uh, if people want to listen to what I have to say in a parliamentary democracy, that's up to them. To the best of my knowledge, I've never, hardly ever anyway, rung anyone and said, please, can I make a speech for you? Or would you like me to do something in your radio? I mean, I didn't ask you to come here. So mm -hmm. you decide whether I'm the person, not me. Yeah, but if I was looking for an interviewee to talk about uh, the interests of the young, with all due respect, I wouldn't have come to you. I come Fine. to you for your experience. Sure. And yet you speak up for the young. Yeah, but only because you asked me the question. No, in your speech you said the young would not forgive well, the old yes, for Brexit. Yes. You're the one saying we must stop Brexit for the sake of well, the young. I, no, I can read the statistics. And if I see that 70% of young want to stay and 30% leave, 
and contrasts with exactly the opposite statistics about the elderly, I can work out that the young probably have got a view which is different to the old. And it seems to me a perfectly legitimate point for me to make in that context. Is, is that true, Professor, of politics? Yes. In that don't people just get more conservative as they get older? The idea that the young, won't the young just get old and then they'll like Brexit? Well, in political views, there is evidence that that is true. Yes, we don't know yet about uh, views on the yeah. European Union. I mean, but, I, but I would agree with you that, in fact, there is an element of that. Hmm. And there isn't, but there is also, and, and I think this is important, there are changing attitudes in society. Um, you just take the, 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 you used the words a few minutes ago, a speech of mine went viral. Hmm. The young take that for granted. They understand it. It is their world. It is their tomorrow. People of my generation, I didn't hardly knew what the word meant. And, and so the, the, the young are much more in, in tune with what modern Europe is about. And, and let, let me just take this into the issue of immigration because it's important. That thing, that iPhone, that iPad, and its manifestations is available across the world in the most impoverished parts of the world community. But they all can see and hear on a real-time basis exactly how prosperous we are. And the contrast in all those impoverished homes is stark and immediate. And so if anyone thinks that immigration isn't going to go away because some government says there will be limits or we will impose controls, is just spitting in the wind of the world in which the young people operate. You're saying that technology drives the global migration that we are living I, through. I, I, I didn't put it like that, but what I believe is that power is now spreading in a way that is totally logical from the way it was always spread. You know, there was a time people like Lloyd George addressed audiences of 100,000 people. Lloyd George would have given his eye teeth for the sort of audiences that people like me take for granted. But the audiences that people like me take for granted, which would be, we'll say, the Today programme or Newsnight or whatever it may be, or even the newspapers, are dwarfed by what the internet can deliver in terms of audiences. And it, it is... It is the, the ability to, to communicate on a totally different world basis that is now the agenda that is available to the new generation. Given, given what you've just said about quotas and the like, how, how would you rate the performance of David Cameron's government compared to other Conservative administrations? I think... Because that was the government that normalised the notion of targets. Mm. Uh, well, I think we have plenty. Of, we've had that too many times. But uh, um, uh, in terms of David Cameron's government, which is the question you asked me, uh, I think it was uh, a very good government. That um, uh, first of all, in the period of coalition, began some serious reforms. Uh, won an election. I think it's very important for the Conservative Party to realise that it wasn't them that won that election. It was David Cameron. And he won that election in no small measure because of the social reforms he made in terms of uh, uh, homosexuality and, and all of the, the complex issues that flowed from that, civil partnerships and all of that. 
And that was in the teeth of much opposition within the Conservative Party. But he did it. He, he got out in front, go love a hoodie, all that stuff. Oh, yeah. And he created for himself an image above the Conservative Party, and he won. Now, he also promised a referendum on the Europe, on European Union membership. We'll come to that. But the, the, the other issues that he began, because uh, I was working for him, mm -hmm. a, a sort of glorified civil servant, um, uh, were the, the devolution agenda mm -hmm. of uh, moving power from London back to the great cities of our country. Uh, it was the vision which he shared with his chancellor, who I think was a very good chancellor, George Osborne. Um, and uh, I, one of my last jobs with David was working on the 100 worst housing estates. And uh, now these are big issues, important issues, fundamental issues, uh, economic, social, uh, and moral. Um, so yes, I, I rate him highly. But you rightly ask the killer question. What about the referendum? And here you get to the divide within the Tory party. And he, as leader, tried to find a way to bridge the gap. I could have warned him that he would never bridge the gap because I lived through it all under John Major and saw it earlier than that. Uh, but he tried, and he failed, and he went. I wish he hadn't gone. I wish he was still in the House of Commons, uh, as I wish George Osborne was still in the House of Commons. Uh, but they're not, and there's a void as a consequence. But and it's interesting just to make the point that the present Prime Minister was Home Secretary for six years, in which the, the control of immigration was top of the agenda in theory, but certainly didn't work out that way in practice. And today we have a situation where the number of immigrants, the net immigration from outside Europe, is greatly, hugely bigger than that mm -hmm. from Europe. Could we have complete control? Home Secretary's complete ability to control that, that immigration flow. But this is why I'm, I'm slightly puzzled by your positive assessment of the Cameron government, because it was under his stewardship that we routinely heard talks of targets and the need to limit immigration, while, as you say, nothing was done to those areas that we could control. Yes. And well, there was a, this very dishonest mismatch between rhetoric and action. Well, I think that you're on an important point on this one issue. And I think an, an important part of that is that controlling immigration comes in the end, in many areas, to cutting off the lifeblood of some of our social services. You know, if you want to boost the health service, you've got to have doctors, you've got to have nurses. And it's no use saying, well, we'll take the British unemployed, because the British unemployed don't consist of people who could become doctors or nurses. So you, you bring them in um, to counter, in many cases, the Brits who we train who then go off and work in Australia and America and that sort of thing. Um, so the government probably did keep relying on immigration because it knew that it couldn't sustain British social services without it. Let's, that dishonesty, as you call it, that's your word, but that does bring me on to something I, I want to touch on. It's Brexit Family Fortunes, and here is your host, James Miller. Brexit Family Fortunes, 
our feature that usually looks at your figures from your Brexit policy panel. Yep. But the UK and Changing Europe this week has some very interesting figures having uh, polled MPs. Mm-hmm. Roughly 100 MPs. I think it's about 96, 98, right? 98, yeah. 96, uh, roughly 100. Um, and what's really interesting about it is, well, go on, let, let's test you on your own figures. Because you love lorry queues at Calais, right? Percentage of Remain MPs who think there will be lorry queues at Calais in the event of no deal? 89. 93%. Percentage of Leave MPs? So, so 93%. 93%, 93% of, of the Remain 96. voting MPs. Of Remain voting yeah. MPs Remain think there will be queues of lorries at Dover in the event okay. of no deal. Well, but that's the, the Remain voting MPs. Right. Well, but the Percentage of MPs. Leave voting MPs who think the same? Oh, tell me. 32. Oh, right. <laughs> this is yeah. one of the structural problems we came up with, is in the Conservative Party, there, yes. I mean, there are several things here, but one of the interesting things is the, the relatively high proportion of Conservative MPs who simply don't think that the predicted impacts of no deal will materialise. Right. Let's just look at some more of these figures, right, without having to guess them, but medical shortages, 75% of Remain MPs think there'll be medical shortages, 2% of leave. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a huge difference. Mm-hmm. How can they be that far apart? Because surely it's, we should be dealing with facts, that if there is no deal, certain things will happen, certain things won't happen, and so medical shortages will or will not well, follow. I, I can reconcile this for you, because um, the Remain voters will look at the present situation and look at the language which is being used to control immigration, and they'll say, if they do that, there will be great shortages and it's predictable. The Leave people will be saying, well, if you actually look at the language, you'll find that it's got all sorts of words in it, like quotas and like limitations. But this isn't just about quotas, this is about the the impact of no deal. So it's beyond immigration, it is if we fall out with no deal. This was the no deal arrangement. Mm. Well, then then they will be saying, I don't know what they're saying, I don't know. But how can, how can they be that far apart? That's my point. Is it well, there aren't any seventy five percent think you one can, thing and two percent think the other? You can be wild because you approach it from a different point of view. But that's my big concern about all this: is this huge division. Yes. And if you can't agree on the basic facts, yeah. how can you have a sensible discussion on what to do? Well, we aren't having a sensible discussion. But that's awful. Yes, well, it is <laughs> awful. I agree with you. But also bear in mind these aren't facts; these are speculations about the future and what no, some Leave facts. MPs. No, they're not. We don't. There are what facts. Leave MPs will say is, "Don't worry about it. The European Union ultimately depends so heavily on us for exports that it'll give us everything we want on air travel, on medical supplies. Yeah. That is the difference." No, come on, that's not on. Because I could say, "Right, I don't know if the moon's going to come up tonight." Mm-hmm. I think it will because here's some facts, and that mm-hmm. suggests to me the moon is going to rise. Mm-hmm. You might say. Yeah, but I'm looking out the window and it's not there, so I it might not. You're wrong. You're talking absolute nonsense. But at the moment, it feels, you know, I'm not saying which side is which, no, 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 but if you no, can't no, agree no. on the basics... I'm not sure what's going on here, whether you're having a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> he gets very worked up. I just... It's my big concern with Brexit. And, uh, you know, as you say, you've been around a while uh, and seen some crises in your time. But that fact that you... People can't agree on the basic facts. That feels new to me. Oh, no, I don't do that. No, no, no. That, uh, that, uh, you take nationalisation. You take the power of the trade unions. You, you, the big issue, CND, 
No, no, no. I mean, all these things, people go in, they make their judgments, they go into the argument with fixed ideas, with a, with a, a sort of a horizon which they've defined for themselves. And anyone that counters it, they reject or rationalise out. Would you say this was the worst political crisis you've lived through? Oh, there's nothing like it except the Second World War. Yeah, but purely political. And of course, interesting, it is totally related to the Second World War. This is, if I have a criticism, I have one of the referendum campaign, is that the origins of the European Union, what it's all about, the vision, is actually the consequence of uh, the history of Europe's inability to live at peace. But isn't the irony that one of the reasons why the Leave camp- the Remain campaign didn't focus on that is because because they thought it wouldn't resonate particularly with those younger voters that you were talking about well, as much as with older voters? They, they, they must uh, uh, explain their failure to do that. But uh, actually, they didn't worry too much because the young were for them anyway if they bothered to vote. Hmm. The problem was the elderly who had all sorts of romantic 19th century concepts of regaining control. I mean, it's quite interesting, one of the things that I find fascinating about the immigrants is the Royal Navy is being drafted in to try and help with the, Royal, with the, uh, mm. uh, the immigrant issue. Uh, it hasn't dented anyone's belief that we should have the um, control over our fishing. And no one mentions the Cod Wars. Mm-hmm. And what is the Navy going to do then with its totally different level of military capability uh, to cope with the tensions of people fishing in our waters? Do you think the tone of political debate has deteriorated not since your all, day? Not at all. I mean, the, the, the 18th century... Um, uh, Before your day? Just, just about, just about <laughs> at the margin. The 18th century sort of caricatures of politicians, the uh, uh, Victorian parodies, uh, the Lloyd George speech uh, about the House of Lords. Um, mm. I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Consider the lilies of the field, or the valley, was it? I forget. Lloyd Bevan's less than verbin in the 1940s about mm. the Tory party. No, 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 of course not. People get excited. It matters for them. Um, we mentioned cabinet earlier. Would you like to be back in the cabinet? Oh, love it, but I mean, it's not real. You couldn't. Why not? Because at the age of 85, you cannot Why take not? the strain. Ken Clark becomes prime minister of a national government. Could that happen? <laughs> well, um, it could happen, right? I spent a lot of time trying to help Ken become leader of the Conservative Party. But I suspect that Ken, faced with that choice, would say, look, I'm not as young as I was, uh, and it, it, it is a grueling job. So it's, it's completely ridiculous for me to start thinking in terms of another bid for the leadership of the Conservative <laughs> Party. <laughs> We're not in normal times. Anything, <laughs> anything could happen. Ken Clark's national government phones you up, you'd be there. I think I'd have quite a lot of trouble with my wife. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that could be overcome. Well, I don't know, maybe not. Um, Just before we move on, just one thing. We're talking about your speeches. You've finished one of your speeches talking about uh, the damage that Brexit will do, and you finished it by saying, I will have no part of it. Correct. What did you mean? I meant that if this is the way the Conservative Party wants to see things unfold, so be it. But I will have no part in helping them do it. 
You would leave the Conservative Party? No, they can kick me out, but I won't leave. That's what they'd like. If they pursued no deal as government policy, you would, I would still sit on the Conservative benches? But I wouldn't vote for them. <laughs> well, then you'd get kicked out. Then I'd get kicked out. That's for them. Okay. They, if they think they're going to win by kicking out people like me, that's up to them. Do you think that's likely? Do you no. think that's a possibility? Well, they're kicking me out of government, yeah. helping the government. Uh, even though three weeks later she had to concede the point <laughs> I'd voted on was her policy as well. But she's, she's a flipper. I mean, she changes her mind, you know. Do you think the Tory party will split? No, because the Tory party, in my experience, is the most sophisticated political force in the history of human democracy. It doesn't look like that from the outside. It now. doesn't at this particular moment, but I believe it will come to its senses. It knows, in fact, that the purpose of politics can only be served with power, and getting power means getting elected, and if you're divided, you don't get elected, and it's not a complicated analysis. And the Tory party likes getting elected, and it will, in fact, come to its senses in order to do that. Tragically, tragically, it might take a lost election to bring it to its senses. Um, go on then, let's finish up with a prediction, if you'll play that game. What happens? Brexit, she loses the vote next week. That's the starting point, yes? Well, I, I, I assume that there is no rational case for believing that May deal can go to the Commons. So then what happens? Now, that's, that, that's, oh, I've already qualified it. I've said there's no <laughs> rational case. Uh, but I know politicians, and you never know. You don't know what the Europeans are going to say. You don't know what the, yep. uh, uh, the nerve of the Brexiteers will hold, etc., um, etc., uh, so, it, on any rational basis today, the deal will not go through. Uh, at that stage, I would guess the Labour Party will go for a vote of no confidence in the government. They will lose it. Mm -hmm. And they will then have to have another way forward. And my guess is they will go for a second referendum. And they amend whatever she comes back with three days after the vote to include a second referendum. Uh, she so has to come back, she now has to come back three days oh, after she, she loses. Come back, yes. And they'll amend oh, whatever yes. she comes oh, back so, with so, so, to oh, say so, second so referendum. Find that with the, the really big change that the last 24 hours has made is that Parliament has assumed control. I've never heard, seen that happen before, but you've now got seniors and serious people sides working together, self-evidently working as, as a team, in order to uh, ensure that the blackmail technique of you don't vote for the May deal, we're going to leave without a deal, is blown apart. I believe that would happen, but I didn't know the form, but it is now materialised that there is now a majority in the House of Commons that will not allow no deal to happen. And there's a majority for a second referendum, let's say, which I know is a big if, Second referendum, who wins it? What's the question? All these, like so much else, is unpredictable. And, uh, but the one that has to be on the paper is now that you know more than you knew then, are you prepared to stay? Do you want to stay or leave? Um, politics professor, where are you? At the, we've had various predictions from you over the last few episodes. Where are you at the moment? Is the deal passed or what's going to happen? 
I have less faith in the deal passing now, particularly having seen our MP survey, actually, than I had before Christmas. Oh, you flip-flop all the time. You, you've told me all sorts of gradually things, amending my position so then what in happens? light of the facts. Do you think there'll be a second referendum? I think the procedural hurdles are huge, but I think the Conservative Party could not fight a general election because they couldn't decide on a Brexit policy. They would have to almost go to the people on a platform of no deal, having rejected May's deal, which I don't think works. I mean, so they can't do that. No, but I think that is the sticking point. I mean, I would normally have said I think the more likely outcome is a general election than a referendum, because there are lots of MPs for lots of different reasons who don't want another referendum. Uh, but I don't see what the Conservatives say about Brexit in their manifesto if they go for a general election. But they won't. Go, they're not going to go for a general election. No, precisely. So second referendum is becoming more likely. I think. Oof. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm not getting involved in this prediction game. Um, <laughs> told you, Ken, Ken Clark's national government. That's where we're going to end up. That's my prediction. Um, let's. That, that is a version, that's not different to Parliament taking control. No, but it's different to a. Re- I, I, I don't have to. I'm not the expert here. I don't have to predict. No, no there is no, there is no expert. <laughs> Tell him that. It's but a fair point. It, but it, it, he's saying it. But there is no chartered territory for this situation where Parliament is telling its government what to do. Um, okay, let's finish with uh, the feature, which is called. In the, can you remember what it's called? In the unlikely event that this podcast hasn't told you everything you need to know. Has not enlightened you sufficiently. I think that's what it is. It ends ends insufficiently. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Um, A recommendation to get to the heart of Brexit. Lord Heseltine, what would you recommend to our listeners that they should read, watch, look at? Trying to recommend anything that will stand the test of 24 hours is a dangerous thing. But to really understand the trauma of our relationship with Europe, how it all came about, the rows, the divisions, the views of the players, if you have the time, there was a series of BBC broadcasts called The Price of Victory, in which was Michael Charlton interviewed the players, political, civil service, industrialists, who played a part in Britain's accession to the Treaty of Rome in 1970. And the moment which shows it all was Brad Butler, one of the great architects of Britain's post-war recovery, who was asked why we hadn't accepted the offer of the Europeans to lead them in the European vision after the Second World War. He said, and I remember the words, it wasn't on, you see, it wasn't on. We were quite wrong, of course, but it wasn't on. (laughs) That's a good recommendation. Which reminds me, Rab Butler is a fellow former uh, Deputy Prime Minister, like yourself. Was he? Yes, yes, I was looking through the list of deputy prime ministers. Yes. Politics professor, would you like a, no. A, no. A, a an alternative history where the prime ministers of this, of this country were Attlee, Morrison, Eden, Butler, Howe, Heseltine, Prescott and Clegg? That'd be an interesting history, wouldn't it? Tails off somewhere, what, towards the end? Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, what's your recommendation? I've got two. 
You're gonna Ooh, have to you come with two me. this I week. I come with two. One, just because I thought the uh, Brexit and Uncivil War programme was fantastic oh, as yeah. entertainment. I thought it was just a really good programme. This isn't a comment on whether it was true, whether it wasn't true. I just thought it was two hours of really good television that made you think a bit about politics. And if you want to think a bit more deeply about politics, and if you have to have reading glasses, put them on because the font is dreadful. Uh, Phil Cowley's book on the 2017 general election, Cowley and Kavanaugh's book on the 2017 general election, gives you a nice insight into what an unparalleled moment in our politics we are living through and what's happening in the parties and why. Mm. Okay. Can I comment on that? Yeah. No. Well, you can comment on my means, but I watched that program mm -hmm. with growing dismay mm -hmm. because. First, the obvious point that, that the role of, of uh, Dominic Cummings and uh, Cambridge Analytics uh, leading to criminal acts which are still unresolved, mm -hmm. question mark. But the programme completely ignored the role of Murdoch, Conrad Black, Paul Dacre. Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> what role? That's the whole yeah. point. He's never wrong. But, but it's, 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 the, it's the the massive drip, drip, drip of hatred that those owners or editors of our national press conducted from uh, way back. I mean, we're talking about the ages. Mm -hmm. And if you really want to go stay back to further, up yours, the law. The what? Up yours, Delore from the Sun. In yeah. Uh, that, that, but that was Murdoch. Mm. Yeah. You know, and Conrad Black. When I stood for leadership of the Tory Party, Murdoch and Black both intervened to tell their editors not to support me. Right. Let's get the big one out of the way first. Did you notice that little wonk-on-wonk wonk action there? Did you notice Anan Menon having a little dig at the font in Philip Cowley's book? Oh, a little wonky font-based side-eye there, I think that was. Um, apart from that, though, Lord Heseltine said some interesting stuff, didn't he? He would love to be back in the Cabinet. Well, I think there's a few people who would love to have him back in the Cabinet. And there's quite a lot of people who would very much not want him back in the Cabinet, to be fair. He said he would like David Cameron and George Osborne to still be in the House of Commons. That, again, is uh, a view which is contentious, I think it's fair to say. He said the British unemployed don't consist of people who could become doctors or nurses. Well, um, that seems a little bit offensive to some unemployed people, I would suggest, but uh, maybe I'm wrong. Certainly seems like uh, a good point for discussion. And he said... The Conservative Party can kick me out, but I won't leave. That's what they'd like. I think the they he's referring to is the, the hard Brexiteers who have never seen eye to eye with him over Europe. Uh, he obviously thinks that they have taken control of the Tory party as it stands. But uh, lots of fascinating stuff there, lots of talking points. I mean, think what you like about Heseltine's politics. And obviously he was a very close adherent of Margaret Thatcher in the early days of her government and then of course he booted her at the end of her government um, whatever you may think of his politics he's been around long enough 
uh, he has enough experience to be worth listening to. Um, he mentioned early on that he got sacked by Theresa May. That was because he voted for the uh, Meaningful Vote Amendment, uh, which of course went on to be passed and which will be voted on next week. So heaven knows what we'll have to say in uh, the podcast next week or whenever it may the next one may appear because the situation could change very dramatically. But uh, you've heard what Lord Heseltine thinks will happen and you've heard what Anand Menon thinks will happen. Or indeed you've heard what I think will happen. Although, you know, I'm not being entirely serious about Ken Clark's national government. Um, we will see how those predictions measure up in the next few days. If you want to get in touch to discuss what is happening, what you think will happen, by all means send me your predictions and I will happily read them out and compare them to the great and the good that we have on this podcast. If you want to nominate a member of the great and good that you'd like to hear from, then by all means get in touch. I am at Political Yeti on Twitter. I am UK in a Changing Europe podcasts at gmail.com on the email. And UK in a Changing Europe are at UK and EU on Twitter and UK and EU.ac.uk on the internet. My website is james-miller.com and there you will find the full list of recommendations by all our guests in Series 1 and Series 2. It is getting to be a very lengthy list, but you can obviously pick and choose between what you want to pay attention to there, whether you would rather watch Star Wars Episode 1 or read a lengthy academic piece of work from the UK and a changing Europe. You decide. Um, so there's getting in touch. If you want to get in touch about the competition, I still haven't had any entries, uh, correct entries. Obviously, I had loads of entries. Oh, yeah, loads. Um, I haven't had any correct entries in the attempt to make the link between family fortunes and Brexit. Please get in touch if you think you know what it is. The prize will roll over week on week. So it'll be massive by the time somebody gets a correct answer. The music this week has again been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. I've been James Miller. This has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK and a changing Europe, supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Come back soon for another episode. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.